0: Well good morning, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 20 and as you're turning there, just uh, this morning we're going to finish up this, uh, the fourth of five discourses or, or sections of teaching that, that are in Matthew and um, that Jesus is, is giving these. But in this particular discourse, um, Matthew begins it in chapter 18 and it continues through 20, and that's what we'll cover this morning. And, and, and throughout it, Jesus is pointing hes pointing to this community that is found within the kingdom of heaven and is expressing the value of this community, how this community is to relate to God, and then how this community is to relate to one another. Um, Pastor Jimmy, uh, two weeks ago, taught through chapter 18, and Booney taught through chapter 19 last week. And Booney even said, um, that while chapter 19 is not even the same sermon as 18, it's not even in the same geographical location as chapter 18, it does flow out of 18. And, and similarly today, chapter 20 flows out of the context and the ideas and the teachings that, that we find in chapter 18 and 19. And all of these are connected together in this fourth discourse that Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching about humility. He's teaching about mercy and forgiveness and selflessness and uh, those permeate throughout these three chapters. And uh, all those things are uh, characteristics of, they are um, expressions of a heart that values this community within the kingdom of heaven. But there's also, along the way, Jesus is teaching and confronting the issues of hard-heartedness. He's confronting the issues of pride and haughtiness and selfishness and unforgiveness. And uh, those are all things that flow from a heart that is elevated self and possessions and, and rights above the kingdom community. And he's used multiple teachings along the way and multiple parables. If you'll remember, um, he, he's contrasting heart of pride with the heart of childlike faith and humility. You remember the disciples, they question Jesus about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to hear again similar today. They do the same thing. Um, but he points them to a childlike humility. He shows them that um, in this kingdom community, that the last would be first, the greatest would be least, the least would be greatest, and the first would be last. Um, and, and then we also see, he tells of a parable of the unforgiving servant and the lack of mercy that he had, the lack of forgiveness that he had despite the forgiveness and the mercy that he had been shown. Last week, Boone's helped us understand that the issues of divorce and remarriage, um, they revealed they reveal the hardness of heart of Israel. And they they pointed us and pointed Israel to the sanctity of and the design of marriage um, as God designed it. And then Jesus uses the tragedy of this rich young man um, to show us the the dangers of riches, but more pointedly to show us the foolishness of pride and and looking to ourselves or looking to our possessions uh, to be saved. And all of this calls the disciples to ask a question. They ask, who then can be saved? I mean, think about it. This is probably a logical question for the disciples to ask. Because Jesus had just uh, received those that they thought that he should have or de- um, denied. And he had just denied those that they thought he should have accepted. Um, he had received the, uh, the humble and he had rejected the proud. Uh, so naturally they asked the question, well, then who can be saved? Well, I think that's the question that Jesus wanted them to get to. I think it's a question that we ourselves need to get to. Because then Jesus points them to what I believe is the overarching truth of this fourth discourse that runs through Matthew 18 through 20. Um, And the answer to their question, who can be saved, is simply from 1926, with man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. No one can be saved apart from God. And that's what Jesus is pointing them to, to humility. They're to Admit to and submit to the fact that they cannot save themselves. They can't save anyone else. It is impossible. Their salvation does not depend upon their own merits. They're wholly reliant on the grace and the mercy of God for their salvation. Um, your salvation, my salvation, it is a free gift of God's divine mercy. And it's totally devoid of our own merit and works. To put it another way, in, in chapter 19, in the end of it, verse 30, Jesus put it this way. Um, He said, in this kingdom community, many who are first will be last, and the last first. The ones who will inherit the kingdom of heaven in eternal life are those who would humble themselves. Those who would look away from their own merits, who would have faith like that of a child. They would put aside their pride. They would walk in forgiveness. They would uphold God's standard for life. And they would see their Christ. They would see Christ as their treasure above all other worldly possessions, including, according to verse 29, including mother and brother and sister and child. And it's this statement in in chapter 19, verse 30, that many who are first will be last and the first will be last and the last first, that sets the stage for what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 20. Because he goes on, Jesus goes on to expound on what he means by that. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And that brings us to our Chapter 20 today, if you'll follow along there as we read, we're going to read the whole text. Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one's hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, um, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us and have us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last workers as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with that which belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And Jesus, when he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, meaning Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not for me to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting beside the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we hear from You, from Your Word, would You work in us by Your Spirit to remove our blinders, give us eyes to see, unplug our ears, give us ears to hear You. Father, would You grow our love for your word this morning, would you grow our love for the triune Godhead? Would you grow our love for one another? And Father, would you work in our hearts to convict us in places and areas that need, that we need conviction, but not leave us there? Would you pour out your grace and mercy on us? Show us how we can serve you better. Show us how we can serve one another better. Father, show us how to put away our pride and walk in humility. Father, we love you and pray these things by the power of your Spirit and in your Son's name. Amen. This chapter, as you notice, is divided in four sections, and we're going to deal with those in order today. But uh, coming out of Jesus' teaching in chapter 19 that the first will be last and the last will be first, to help drive this point home, he begins with a, a parable. A parable of the vineyard owner and his laborer's. Um, and he begins by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. So we know right off that this is a parable. Um, he's comparing um, something and telling a story to help his audience understand an important truth about the kingdom of heaven. And the setting that he uses is a vineyard, which is an interesting setting. Um, you know, Multiple times in the Old Testament, uh, Israel is referred to as um, the vine or the vineyard of God. Um, next week, um, Booney's going to preach, and you're, you're going to hear more about this reference to vineyard. And uh, Anytime I hear vineyard, I, I think of John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And then in verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And then as I'm reading that, I'm just I'm struck by the similar language. Um, you know, with man this is impossible But with God, all things are possible. And then Jesus says, apart from me, you can do um, nothing. But this parable, uh, unlike some of the others, is pretty easy to follow. It's not a hard parable to read and understand. You have a master. Uh, He hires workers for his vineyard. He essentially hires them in five different shifts. Um, Their workday kind of ran 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So uh, he goes out in the marketplace and finds workers at 6 a.m. They agree on a a wage, which was a denarius, Um, and then he goes out and and hires another group at 9 a.m., another group at noon, one at 3 p.m., and then one at 5 p.m., just one hour before um, the work ended. Um, And when he hired the the ones at 9 a.m. and noon and and 3 and 5, he didn't agree on a a price. He just said, I'll pay you whatever's right. Um, And so they all... Went and worked in the vineyard. And at the end of the workday, all the workers were paid. And the master begins with those who were last. Again, pointing to the last will be first and the first will be last. But he begins with the ones who only worked one hour. And he paid them a full denarius. Paid them a full day's day's wage. And uh, immediately if I was there, and I was one of those first workers, I know exactly what I would have been thinking i had been looking at my buddy beside me going, this is going to be great. These guys only worked one hour, and they got the full wage that we were promised. We're going to get paid, right? I worked for 11 hours longer than these guys. I'm going to get some money. Be honest, wouldn't you have been thinking the same thing? Yeah, because we think that that's what is fair. Hold on to that word. We'll come back to it. But that's not what happened master paid all of the workers the denarius, regardless of how long they had worked. And when the early bird workers received their pay, they grumbled. We'd have done the same. They grumbled about the fact that they didn't get more, though they didn't ask for more money. When they actually grumbled, they were, what they were really angry about is that the workers who worked less got the same amount of pay that they did. So it was less about them getting more money. It was more about, well, you gave them the same. They didn't deserve it. It's not fair at all. Isn't it easy for us to relate to the early workers? I just kind of texting back and forth to Boonie this week, and I said it's interesting how Jesus does this through his parables. He gets us to identify with and relate to and side with all the wrong people. Think about, think about the parable of the prodigal son. When you first read the par- that parable of the prodigal son, who do you initially relate to? Older brother, Right. Because you go, wait a second, the younger brother took all his money, spent it on wild living, and he comes back after doing that, and he gets sandals for his feet, and he gets a ring, and he gets a robe, and they kill the fat calf, and they have a party. I haven't even gotten a goat yet. That's not fair. The younger brother, My younger brother doesn't deserve that. It's not right. And in today's parable, we do the same thing. The workers who worked one hour, they get the same pay as the others who worked 12 hours and nine and six and three. And we would say, man, that's not fair. I can understand why the first workers are upset. I can, I'd be upset too. I've been there. Okay. (laughs) Quick story about my granddaddy, Henry. Um, Some of you in here know him, but he he helped me unknowingly learn this lesson. He was a farmer, and oftentimes I'd help him bale hay, and, and he would tell me, hey, get two or three of your friends. Um, get them to come help us work, and I'll give them a little spending money. That's what he'd call it. He'd give them a little bit of spending money. And uh, so I did. I called up some friends, and we got two or three to agree to come and help, but they couldn't come but a few hours after me. So I showed up, and it's the heat of the day. Um, because the hay had been cut, but it had to dry, and then they had to kick it up and let it dry more, and then they had to row it, and then you finally got to bale it when it was scorching out. You ride behind a trailer, and the baler kicks it up to you, and you walk to the back of the, hay, the, the trailer, and you stack and stack and stack it five, six bales high, probably 30 bales long, and when you finish one trailer, you go and do the next. Well, um, I showed up. Three hours later, my buddy showed up. We worked hard all day, um, it was hot. It was itchy. It was dusty. It was exhausting. And when you finished stacking it all in the trailers, you pulled the trailers into the barn, and then you unstacked it all and restacked it again in the barn. And uh, but we'd finished for the day. I had worked about seven hours. My buddies maybe four. And Granddad Henry thanked us for our hard work, and he commenced to handing out money and paid me last. Gave my buddy fifty. And my other buddy, 50, and so in my mind I'm immediately thinking, oh, I'm going to get 75, 80 bucks here. Hands me two $20 bills. And you can imagine what I was thinking. Wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> it's not fair. I worked longer. I was in the heat of the day. I had picked up bales of hay that had a half a snake hanging out of them. It would startle you. Not to mention I'm his grandson. <laughs> but I was just like the workers. When my friends left, he came back over to me to reveal the reason why I had, why I had been paid less. It was pretty simple. He had run out of cash. <laughs> and he said he'd pay me later, and I'm sure he probably did. But, man, I jumped right to the conclusion of injustice and unfairness and couldn't believe my friends got more to me, and that's exactly what the workers in the vineyard are doing here. They're upset. They had made a crucial mistake that I was guilty of, and they were guilty of. Uh, um, their worldview was skewed. They were viewing life through this lens of fairness. We've already admitted that we do too, but this morning I want to help us understand there's a better way to view life. There is a better worldview, and it's not only better, it's the only right way to view life. Instead of viewing life through the lens of fairness, we should view life through the lens of grace. And Jesus, through the parable here, helps us understand what it looks like. Because the master of the vineyard, he goes on to ask three questions to this these workers that are indignant. And he singles out one of them. But, and these three questions, man, they all week have been like giant spotlights that have just shone on my heart and revealed My pride and and my selfishness and uh, the fact that I really view life through the lens of fairness instead of grace. and um, They push against every natural thought that we have against fairness because we think that's what we deserve. We think we deserve fairness and we want fairness, but uh, do we really want fairness? Do we really want justice? Well, D.A. Carson, he asked this same question and he gives a really, really stunning answer. It's shocking. But he asked the question, do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous justice? Then go to hell. Because that's what we deserve. Apart from Christ. But we don't like to think that way. We don't like to talk to ourselves that way. We don't like to talk to others that way. But that is the fairness that we deserve. And so we view all of life through this lens of fairness and justice. But, and I don't want to discount the fact this morning that there really are injustices in the world. There are. And we should seek to do something about them. Our laws and our standards and our, our judicial systems should be fair. And when they're not, where they're off, where they're wrong, we should fight against them. But my point this morning is I want us to be challenged in the whole of how you view life. How do you view yourself, God, others, all the people in this universe, is it through the lens of fairness or is it through the lens of grace? And these three questions, they also shine an even brighter spotlight on the God's heart and they reveal that he has a heart for his people. That he deals with his people not according to what they deserve or what's fair, but he deals with his people according to his grace and his mercy. First question that the master of the vineyard asks and he begins very gently. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did I not agree with you for denarius? I've treated you with fairness. I'm, the master here is not unfair. He gave the worker exactly what he had promised. There is no unfairness. And same can be said about God. God is not unfair. So long as he gives what he promises and he has and he will, And that's what Jesus' point here is with the first question. Uh, Hear me this morning. You, me, we all need to stop trying to figure out God's doing too much for somebody else. We need to start asking if God's been faithful to us. We need to ask if God's been faithful to others. That's the real issue. Has God delivered on his promises? Has he been true to his word? And the answer is always going to be yes. Yes. But sadly we are more like the workers than we would want to admit because we want to look around the room. And we want to look across the hallway and we want to look at the house next door, and we want to look at the classmate beside us, and we want to look at the other athletes, and we even want to look at the other church down the road. And all the while we're we're saying and thinking, well, what are they getting? Is it more than they deserve? Are they getting more than me? They shouldn't have that. They shouldn't be that good at what they're doing. They shouldn't have that much success. They shouldn't get that much attention. That church shouldn't have that many people. And here's the problem. If that is our stance, if that's what we're always doing, we're always looking at others, we're not looking at God. We're not looking to him. We're not asking if he's been faithful to all that he's promised. Because if we were, we'd clearly see that he has. Now as we look, is it, is his faithfulness, and it is faithfulness, but is his faithfulness in our lives been all that we've wanted to and maybe all that we've expected it to be? Probably not. We didn't want this hardship, but through it God gave us wisdom. We didn't want this trial over here, but through us we've been taught patience. We didn't want this diagnosis, but God has sanctified us through it. And listen, I know there are some in this room this morning that have faced more disappointment, more trials, more suffering, more discouragement, more depression, and more loss than than I can even imagine. But I know that you can look back and you can see the blessings in your life. I know that you can look back over the entirety of your life and you can see the encouragement that God has given you, uh, the fruitfulness that he's given you, and the love and encouragement that he has shown you even in the darkest and the trying times in your life. Hear me this morning. God has done you no wrong. I encourage you. Remember the faithfulness of God in your life. And as you do, you'll celebrate his faithfulness. You'll celebrate it in your life. You'll celebrate it in the lives of others. You won't be jealous. You won't be envious. You won't think of life as being unfair Because you'll be viewing the life, your life, and the life of others. You'll be viewing this universe through the lens of God's grace. And the second question, uh, the master says, take what belongs to you and go. Said, I choose to give uh, to this last worker as I give to you. And then his question, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So the workers here in the vineyard, they're complaining about rights. They didn't think that the other workers had a right to a full day's pay, and they thought that they had a right to more than a full day's pay. But the vineyard owners, uh, owner, he sees his rights a little bit differently. He basically said, you've received exactly what I promised you. Nothing more, nothing left, nothing less, now take your pay and go. And as the owner of the vineyard, I have a right also. I have the right to do what I want with my money. I have a right to bless as I see fit. And kind of the point for us this morning is God owes no one a debt. He doesn't owe us anything. He gives according to his grace. The only reason that any of us have anything, any good gift, is because he's freely given it to us out of his inexhaustible riches. They're his his riches, they're his possessions, they're his gifts, they're his blessings. The talents you have are his talents, they're his opportunities, his church, it's his people, and he distributes as he pleases. If I get, it's because of grace, and if you get, it's also because of grace. Whether the worker in the parable arrived at 6 a.m. or whether they arrived at 5 p.m., it was the kindness of the landowner to call the worker, to hire the worker, to send the worker into the vineyard, to promise the worker he was going to pay them and then to to give them what he promised. This kingdom community that we're talking about, it, it operates not according to the amount of work that we do. It operates according to God's generosity and his grace and his mercy. And this is, listen, this is where the prosperity gospel is so dangerous, so wrong, because it's based on transaction. If you'll do this, if you'll do that, if you'll live well, if you'll pray hard, if you'll pray long enough, if you'll be loud enough, if you'll worship in one particular style or another, this body position, then you're going to earn transactional favor with God. And then as you do, you're going to begin to believe that God owes you something and that you deserve more. So you put in your order with them for a bigger house and a nicer car and a bigger influence and money and great health. And the prosperity gospel is handing out these uh, fairness lenses to view life by the thousands. They know nothing of the lenses of grace. And the last question that the, that the vineyard owner asks, he says, do you begrudge my generosity? It's, it's literally translated, is your eye evil because of my generosity. Now we're getting to the real issue. We're beginning to to drill down a little bit deeper and the problem here really isn't about a denarius. The problem is not about the hot scorching sun. The problem's not really about the amount of hours that they worked. The problem is their hearts. The landowner is saying, you're actually mad at my generosity. You're not really mad that you worked more. You're not really mad that it was hot. You're not really mad that you only got a denarius. You're really mad because I was generous and you didn't think that I should have been. And your self-interest blinded you to my goodness. And instead of marveling at my goodness, you were envious of it and you missed my grace. The question for us this morning is, do we marvel at God's generous grace? Do we marvel at it in our lives? Do we marvel at it in the lives of others? Or are you jealous and envious over it do you say to yourself, "It'd be so much happier for me to, so much easier for me to be happy with what I have if everybody else didn't have so much more"? Well, the answer for you isn't to get what everyone else has because that's an external thing. The answer is to deal with it internally. The answer is to have a heart that sees everything through the lens of grace, and this will cause us to marvel at God's generosity in our lives, and especially His generosity in the lives of others even if we don't see, and especially if we don't see that same generosity in our lives. Though if we really looked, we would see it. And then to close out this parable, Jesus repeats his statement from verse 30 in chapter 19. He said, and so the last will be first, and the first last. And what does this mean? Well, it means that the this kingdom the community it's not like the community of the world it's backwards it's opposite it's reverse it's it's different it's inverted the grace of god is surprising if you think about it because this kingdom this community it's not a first serve first come first serve kind of kingdom or one that operates based off of seniority or rank or age or the amount of work that we've done it's a kingdom that where the king he doesn't keep track of how long you've been there doesn't matter if you've worked or if you've been shown generosity or been saved or you've been around for 12 years, nine years, six years, three years, one year. Um, and I'm not denying the fact that there are, when we get to heaven, there will be degrees of reward there. But I'm trying to highlight this morning the, the abundant generosity of God, regardless of our accomplishments, regardless of our sacrifices. Um, his generosity is not earned by our age or our seniority or our rank or our experience or the time that we've put in. And that's the point. Our salvation is solely dependent on the grace of God in Christ. For the person, the man or the woman or the boy or girl, who thinks he's first and walks around as if he has a right to God's grace, he'll never receive it. It's pride. pride. Instead, God's grace is only for the one who understands that he has no right to it. He sees himself as last, and he will receive the grace of God. And therefore, in the end, through humility, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And Proverbs 15.33, put puts it another way there. It says, humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. It's through humility that one will receive honor. The last will be first. We look at the second section today in Matthew 20, and we'll see that um, this second section is showing us the humility of Jesus in delivering himself over to mocking and to flogging and death by crucifixion as he gives his life as a ransom for his people. Now, if you'll remember from last week, Um, Jesus and his disciples, they they leave Galilee, Um, they enter in the region of Judea, uh, and there were large crowds that were following them, and they had kind of linked up to the Jordan River, and they were following the Jordan River river south, um, headed towards Jerusalem. And Jesus knew exactly what he was headed towards. And in in fact, um, this is the third time that Matthew records that Jesus is telling his disciples of what was coming. We're heading to Jerusalem, and this is what awaits me. Um, my arrest and my crucifixion. And I don't think that this section of verses 17 through 19, is not randomly placed in here. It's very strategic on Matthew's part and in Jesus's teaching. Um, He's teaching the disciples that in the kingdom of heaven, the first would be last and the last would be first. And he's pointing them to humility. And as they're making this trek to Jerusalem, he reminds them of exactly why they're headed there. He says, I'm going to he basically says, I'm going to go fulfill the most humble act of all time. I'm going to deliver myself over to being mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus is going to put himself in a position of someone's last. And he, and we read it this morning, the, the only one who knew no sin was going to become sin in order to, to take on and satisfy the wrath of God. He didn't deserve the wrath of God, yet he placed himself under it to become a ransom for many. And then he drives this this point home when he says, uh, this point of the last will be first, when he says, I will be raised on the third day. He's showing them, telling them that through my humility, I'm going to put myself as as if I'm last, but on the last day, I will be raised up and I'll be first. Through my humility will come my honor. Sadly, the disciples, they didn't understand this. If you read Mark's parallel account of this, Mark tells us that they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And and then kind of moving to the third section today, I'll, I'll agree with Mark. They just didn't get it. Because in this third section, verses 20 through 28, Jesus is having to deal with, uh, the pride of a mother, the, the pride of two disciples. He's having to deal with the anger of the other ten disciples, and he points them to lives of, of, of servanthood. Um, but in verse 20, uh, Salome, who is the mother of James and John, who she is most likely the sister of Jesus's mother, Mary. Um, so John and James are cousins of Jesus, but she comes up there with her sons and kneels before Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want to ask? And she said, I want you to make, to make it so that my sons sit on your right and on your left. Now, this, before we get too carried away, this is not a totally random thought. Okay, if you're in your Bible there, in Matthew 19, turn back to verse 27. Verse 27 and 28, we see, Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man um, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they know that they're going to rule with Jesus. They know that they're going to have thrones, okay, but they weren't content with just having a seat. They wanted the best seats. They wanted the one at the right and the one at the left. Um, and they're clearly not catching on to what Jesus had been pointing them to in humility. Um, but Jesus answers them. He's speaking back to the mother and to James and John. And he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink this cup? Jesus is basically asking them, are you, are you able to share in the, the suffering and the death that I'm heading towards right now? Are you able to share in this cup as well? And they, James and John, both said, we're able Um, and he said to them, you will drink my cup. And if you track along through Scripture, interestingly enough, James was the first one to to drink that cup. He was the first one to be martyred of the apostles. Uh, He was killed by Herod's sword, and then we know John also goes on to suffer greatly um, in persecution, and he's exiled. Um, But Jesus says, you know, you will drink my cup, but it's, it's not for me to grant to you to sit at my right and to my left. That's for the Father to grant. You're dependent on his sovereign will. You're dependent on his sovereign choosing for your future. And then the ten disciples, ten other disciples, they hear it, and they're, they're angry. They couldn't believe James and John were wanting this honor for themselves, and they couldn't believe that they were probably using their familial, familial relation to maybe gain some extra favor with Jesus. Hey, my nephew, your cousins, can they have the seats beside you? And they were angry. But Jesus calls him to himself and he says, and he points to the world. He says, You know, the Gentiles, they have rulers, those who see themselves first, those who see themselves as authority. And what do they do? They lord it over them. And then he points to the great ones, those who see themselves as first. Great. They exercise authority over them. He's pointing to pride and he's saying, It shall not be so among you. It's not about who's the greatest, it's not about who's first. He said, but it is about the one who would be great among you must be your servant. The one who would be first among you must be your slave. And these are the two lowest positions that there are, servant and slave. And in this this kingdom of heaven, in this community, those who see themselves as servants, they are the ones who will be first and great. There's going to be this great reversal in God's kingdom. And Jesus goes on to say, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he's showing himself as the example of servanthood. And how did he serve? He goes on to say, he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's how he served. He gave his life. He redeemed us from slavery to sin. He released us from the guilt of sin. And in this, when Jesus is saying, I'm giving my... Life as a ransom for many, um, he's not simply meaning that he did it for us, meaning that we would receive something from it, though we do. Um, the word for here is is really, in a deeper way, means in place of. So what he's really saying is that I'm giving my life as a ransom in the place of many. Like he, he gives himself as the ransom. He doesn't just pay it. He gives himself. He is the ransom. He is our substitute. Um, he is our example of servanthood. And then our fourth section this morning coming from verses 29 through 34. Um, we've just seen the pride of the laborers in the vineyard. We've seen the humility of Christ that's going to go deliver himself to be mocked and flogged. We've seen the pride and Anger of the, the disciples. And now again, we, we see a contrasting picture of humility. And this isn't the first time that Matthew has recorded Jesus healing blind men. If you remember back to chapter 9, verse 27, he records a similar but different occasion where Jesus heals two blind men. Um, they were following him, and they, interestingly enough, use the exact same terminology. They, they cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. Um, and then Jesus heals them. But unlike, unlike the two that we're going to look at this morning, they didn't follow him. They actually were sent out. They went out to spread Jesus' fame throughout that district. So I, I feel like these blind men in Jericho had somehow heard this story from these other blind men, either through them directly or, or through just the fame of Jesus' healing because they use the exact same words. They know who he is. They call him the son of David. It says as they they went out of Jericho, and Jericho just geographically is kind of the last point along the Jordan River where they would have kind of left Jericho and headed more towards the east um, to head up towards Jerusalem. But as they left Jericho, a crowd followed, and there were two blind men there. We know from Mark that one's name is Bartimaeus. And as they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd basically tells them, be quiet. And that just makes them get even louder. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And this is a reference to Jesus being the, the promised Messiah that would come through the line of King David. But Jesus, the Messiah, would be the king that would reign forever. And he stops. And Jesus asked them, what do you want to, me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And here's Jesus. Long journey, crowds following. He's met needs. He's had to deal with prideful people that just are not getting what he's teaching on humility. He's having to deal with mamas sticking their noses in there for their boys right? they don't belong and Now he's got these two blind men that that need him. He's on the way to be killed, to suffer, to be mocked, to be flogged, and he knows it's coming. in, in, In spite of all of these things, again, pointing back to Jesus and his servanthood, has pity on these two blind men. He visibly shows the disciples what it is to be a servant. And he touches the eyes of these blind men. And immediately they they recovered their sight and they followed him. Probably followed him all the way to Jerusalem and saw all that would come next. And Mark tells us that it was their faith that made them well. Uh, Jesus actually tells them to, to go on their way and they don't. They follow him. In closing this morning... Every single one of us in this room, we're going to look at every situation in life. And we are going to say, I don't deserve this. We'll say that about everything. I don't deserve this. Husbands, you'll say it about your wives. Wives, you'll say it about your husbands. Parents, you'll say it about your children. Children, you'll say it about your parents. Employees, you're going to say it about your employer. Employers, you're going, to, you're going to say it about your employers. I don't deserve this. Teachers, coaches, you're going to, you're going to say it about your students and about your athletes and vice versa. Booney, Jimmy, myself, as pastors, we're going to say it about you. And you're going to say it about us. We're all going to say I don't deserve this. But here's the key we're either going to, we're going to mean it in one of two ways. We're all going to say it about every situation in life, but we're going to mean it in one of two ways. It's either going to be, I don't deserve this, I deserve better. It's not fair. I deserve more. I deserve a better teacher. I deserve a better parent. I deserve a better child. I deserve a better church. Or, And again, that's viewing all of life through the lens of of fairness and justice and what we think we deserve. Or when we say, I don't deserve this in every situation in life, we could say it like, I don't deserve this because God's been so gracious to me. I don't deserve the generosity I've been shown. I don't deserve as a pastor to have these people to love because they're so good. And God's been so good in giving them. I don't deserve to have a spouse that loves me and treats me and honors me the way that she does. That's a person who views life through the lens of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And my prayer for us this morning is that we understand what we truly deserve. Go back to D.A. Carson's quote. Death. We deserve hell. But that in that we'll cry out much like the, the blind man did here, for God to have mercy on us. My prayer for us is that He'll remove our blindness and that we'll walk in humility, that we will walk in servanthood, that we'll walk in forgiveness and selflessness, and that we will see ourselves as last, trusting that God will raise us up with Him on the last day and that we will be first with Him. And my prayer for us is that as we Look at God as we look at one another, as we look at ourselves, that we will see all of life through the lens of God's love, through his mercy, through his generosity, and through his grace, not what we think is fair or what we deserve by our earthly standards. Would you pray with me? Father this morning thank you for the opportunity to be able to teach and speak and thank you for the time that I spent in your word this week and thank you for shining these questions in my heart and revealing my pride and selfishness and revealing how much I really do just view so much of life through what I I think is fair and just and what I deserve and how much I look around at others and angry at what they get can't believe it, they don't deserve it rather than seeing the things that they have and the blessings they received and instead being happy for them and seeing your generosity and that causing me to worship you because of your goodness and grace. Yeah, they didn't deserve it. But you're good. And you were gracious to them. and I should celebrate that. Father, help us this morning as Oak Valley Church to see the blessings that you have poured out on us. They are countless. Father, you have blessed us with pastors who love you and love each other and love your people. You have blessed this church with people who love each other and love you and love their pastors. You have blessed us with people who understand humility. They're not perfect in it, but they understand it. They're seeking to walk and, and to live life, not to be served, but to be the ones who are serving. Father, help us to do that in a way that's not begrudging. But from a heart that sees just the way that you have served us in being our ransom and Giving us eternal life and a place in your kingdom. And out of that, Father, there is no there's no right action but to serve. Show us our sin in these areas. Show us our weaknesses. And by your spirit, shore us up. Build us up into Christ likeness so that we can honor you and glorify you as you've called us to. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.